Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent base. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the program where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. My name is Jason Peters, and with me, as always, is the man who currently has a buckshot pellet launched in his thigh from a botched barnyard burglary. That's right, (laughs) Mr. Ryan Siebold. What's up, Jason? How's it going, buddy? It's going well, man. Sorted affair. Uh, I remember when you came back from that. That did not go at all like you planned. Still got a limp. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Good thing we're recording this and sitting down. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. But uh, we're not here to discuss that event. No, today we're here to discuss a little movie. A little movie a couple people might have heard where somewhere along the way uh, called Dr. Strangelove. Ryan, do you have a description for us, sir? I do. Google has this described as... A film about what could happen if the wrong person pushed the wrong button, and it played the situation for laughs. Ha ha, nuclear war. Uh, U.S. Air Force (laughs) General Jack... I know, right, those crazy kids. Uh, U.S. Air Force General Jack D. Ripper, (laughs) we're going to talk about that, uh, goes completely (laughs) insane and sends his bomber wing to destroy the USSR. He thinks that the communists are conspiring to pollute the precious bodily fluids of the American people with fluoride in the water supply. Uh, This was made in 1964, was shot over in England, uh, was meant to be shot here, but Peter Sellers couldn't leave because of his divorce. We'll talk about that as well. Of course, directed by good old Stanley Kubrick on a budget of $1.8 million. Reported $1 million of that went to Peter Sellers. Uh, wow. Kubrick was quoted as saying that he got three actors for the price of six since he played three roles <laughs> and it brought in a box office of $9.2 million. So this was a nice little success for him. It was even nominated for Best Picture, uh, though it did not win. My Fair Lady beat it out. So what are you going to do? Um, he lived to fight another day and ended up winning his first o- Oscar uh, on his next one, I think, uh, with 2001. So, Jason, I really uh, enjoyed this. You know, we're going to get into the whole bit of it all, but um, I'm going to go ahead and start this out with a little thing we call on this show Cinematic Confession. Oh, snap. A cinematic confession. Okay, so I believe this is our first cinematic confession of our video era. It is. So you got to break it down for people. Right. So on this show, we've been (laughs) running this show for three seasons prior in audio format. If you have not listened to the show, we did comedy sketches and fake commercials and all kinds of fun stuff. You can go back in the library. It's right here on YouTube um, or on Spotify or Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening to us. Uh, It will be there as well. But uh, we had a feature back then called Cinematic Confessions where, you know, sometimes things come across your table that are just stupid or obvious or, you know, like movies you haven't seen or things you didn't know that you should have as a cinephile or appreciator of film. My Cinematic Confession today is that I thought I had seen this movie. Um, I was very familiar with many scenes from this film as there are many recognizable and quotable scenes. Even The Simpsons has parodied it. Uh, along the way. And so I think it was just 
so much a part of the cinema lexicon, if you will, that I just thought I had seen it. And I have never seen this movie until right oh, now. Oh, wow. That's crazy, man. Yeah. I yeah. mean, this is my first this watch. long and be like a cinephile and someone who's seen thousands of movies and Dr. Strange right. Love isn't one of them. But that's exactly yeah. why we have Cinematic Confession, right? Because every single person that's watching or listening to this right now has probably dozens of films that would qualify as Cinematic Confessions, right? I've never seen Braveheart. That's a huge one. I get crap for that all the time. So we all have them. And uh, interesting that this is one of them for you. I'd be interested to know how much of our audience uh, hasn't seen this one before either. If you haven't seen it before, drop it down. Let us know. Or tell us your cinematic confession in the comments below here. Right. Yeah. So real quick about cinematic confessions. And, and you know, for any of our viewers or listeners that ever feels insecure about, oh, I've never seen that movie, or can you believe that, you know, <laughs> they get shit from their friends and stuff like that. Um, you know, part of the fun for this show, uh, the reason why we have this show, that our, our mission statement, if you will, um, is not to approach these films as pompous film critics. That we are not. Um, this is a journey to explore, watch, and try to further understand the history of cinema. Um, there's going to be a lot of films on this list. You know, most of the list Jason and I compiled because they are films that we have not seen and should have. Uh, yeah. Oftentimes one of us has seen it and the other one has not. Um, things like Wong Kar Wai's In the Mood for Love, for example. Like, I cannot wait to get to that. It's been on our list forever. Um, I will not watch it until it gets pulled, most likely. Um, I like to kind of wait and get surprised by that and, and get these... Uh, first time views on the show. It helps get a, a first time viewing experience, uh, kind of, you know, on record. I think that's part of the fun. Um, you know, I was asked one time I was out at dinner, uh, with one of our, um, top ESPN producers over in Seattle. And he was asking me about our show. And he said, what, what is your credential like what gives you the right or what makes you the authority to say a movie is good or isn't good? And that kind of took me back for a second. And, uh, you know, I had to kind of unwind that and say, we don't, you know, there are things that I could say I, as a viewer liked or didn't like, or that worked for me and didn't, or didn't work for me. Um, I think I'm entitled to that. I think every cinema viewer is entitled to that opinion. We're all you know, going through an experience, a cinematic experience. It's a storytelling, sitting around the campfire type deal. You know, heartbreak feels sure. good in a place like this, Nicole Kidman in the AMC theater intro and all of that shit. So, you know, I think it's important to, you know, remember uh, and kind of rein things back in sometimes that though we do give films grade ratings, those are just based on our opinions, which mean nothing in the scheme of things. Um, there sure. are many yeah. times on this show that, I will give something a very high rating and Jason won't. It just, it, it just didn't work for him um, or vice versa. You know, he, he loves it. It's just in his wheel. <laughs> Dagon is a fantastic film, Ryan. I will die on that <laughs> hill, okay? I knew they it. They don't yes. make two-disc special editions of crappy films, all right, buddy? Oh, man, Dagon, yes. <laughs> My old Stewie G. I don't know if anyone's Stewie out G. there. <laughs> that movie is horny. Um, so... Yeah, uh, that, uh, you know, kind of unwinding it. That's that's kind of my little blurb, if you will. My PSA about our show is that, uh, you know, if we come at it and say, you know, this and then that, and can you believe, don't get too carried away with our opinions. They're just opinions. Sure. Uh, every yeah. critic uh, that comes out is just an opinion, um, you know, 
it is what it is. But but what this show is, is a film discussion program. This is a way for Jason and I to get together as film nerds and include our audience, you as the viewer or listener, and kind of bring it all together and try to suss it out. Why did it work? Why didn't it work? Um, not so much that this did or didn't, but why? And uh, and what about it? It was good or bad uh, to us. Yeah. Personally. And it so, just gives us anyway. an opportunity to do that research. You know, it's not that there were any more authorities or like our opinion right. is any is worth any more or less than anybody else's. But what we will do is we'll say, look, we actually like really broke down this film, right? Like like sure. surgery, getting in there with our little scalpels, lifting up flaps of stuff, poking behind little organs, finding out why stuff works and what doesn't, you know, so there's there. This is art. Art is entirely subjective all the time. Right? There literally is no right or wrong opinion about any of yes. this. But what we can do is we can say, here's my opinion. And then yep. also here is and here are all the different reasons why that opinion exists. And as much as it may be for you, the audience, it's probably even triple more so for us selfishly. Right. Because right. it gives us an excuse to sit down and do that homework. Right. Honestly, if people want to know, like, if we have any sense of credibility to our name, it's just that we put in the work, quite frankly, right? Sure. Uh, there are a number of people, everybody watching this could do what we could do, right? It's just, do you have the resources and the availability and the ability to just sit down and really devote that time to watching the movie, taking notes along the way, researching supplements, articles, sitting down and noodling on why you're having a response one way or another, right? Do you have any sure. inherent biases going into this that might color that, right? Like there's just, there's so much about film, right? And that's really what we break down is it's like so much, so often people just break it down to like, did I like it or not? You know, thumbs up or thumbs down. It's like, well, no, let's look at the cinematography. Did that work? Why or why not? Let's do the same thing for the writing, the direction, the acting. And so at least we can give you a comprehensive viewpoint of why we think what we think. And I think that's really all you can do. And furthermore, I'll say that I believe that's probably the utmost respect that you could show to an artist, right? Sure, I think any right. of us that create anything, whether it's art or, you know, some sort of tangible product or anything in between, like we just want people to experience it, right? Like, give us a fair shake. And if you didn't like it, that's fine. But also, like, go into detail. Why didn't you like it? I would love to know so that I can learn as a creator and make better right. products moving forward. So all of this is part of this sort of, you know, cinematic ecosystem. And we have our parts and the audiences have their part and everybody can participate. Right. Uh, hopefully for anybody that's watching this that feels inspired, go make your own podcast, right? Or your right. own uh, film program, anything. Like, let's get more people watching these films. That's our entire thing. Let's bring attention to films that maybe aren't as well recognized, right? Yeah, we're um, here to Along with ones like this. It's not like, though right. <laughs> that little film Dr. Strangelove, right? We got to work some bigger ones in there. But we're also going to do films that, like, we've never even heard of, let alone you, right? So totally understand, man. And hopefully everybody else does as well. Cool. Well, with all that said, as uh, as I say every episode, Jason, what did you think about this movie, buddy? Ryan, going to be happy to tell you first, want to go ahead and remind our audience, though, uh, if you haven't yet, like the video, subscribe to the channel. And as we move along, please feel free to comment along the way, whether you agree or disagree with us, we would love to hear from you. If you'd like, you can also go to the website esotericacinema.com. You can reach out to us over there. Or send us an email to esotericacinema at gmail.com. One way or another, again, let us know what you think. We would love to hear from you, and we would love to foster this 
discussion amongst our community as well. So let's get into Dr. Strangelove here. When this film opens, we actually are looking at a number of individual mountaintops that are piercing through this like solid layer of clouds. And we hear a narrator inform us that somewhere below is rumor of a Russian developed doomsday device that has the potential to destroy all of Earth. And then immediately after that, we get a credit sequence with not so subtle allusions to the act of lovemaking via plane. <laughs> and I also just love that like a guy in his 30s basically just made like a 14 year old's dick joke on cinema and was like, studios, make this happen for thousands of dollars, please. And thank you. <laughs> but I do actually think there's some other allusions that that credit sequence is speaking to. Uh, that we'll get into a little bit down the road. Now, the film starts proper at this Air Force base. We're introduced it's also, to... Uh, it, it, it also opens with uh, Try a Little Tenderness, a nice waltz score. Um, oh, yes. Stanley Kubrick loves himself a good melodic waltz. I was going to say, waltz. loves himself some waltz. 2001 is rife. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about that a little bit more, but uh, I don't know if you noticed this, Jason, or if you're familiar with the song at all. It, it does date back to the 30s. Frank Sinatra did a cover, but it is most notably uh, performed by a one Otis Redding. Try a little tenderness. Oh, wow. So, there you go. This is an instrumental uh, waltzy version of that. Very nice. Very nice. Didn't pick up on that. So it is about, you know, try a little tenderness, warming up your lady, you know, and then it's showing all these B-52 bombers hooking up for refueling, a little penetration, a little rocking back and forth. So, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of insinuation going on here. (laughs) Naturally setting the tone for dark screwball comedy as it does every time. Right. Now, when the film starts off proper, we're at the Air Force Base and we're introduced to Lionel Mandrake, who is one of three roles played by Mr. Peter Sellers. And oh, so he will, good. So good. Yeah, we're going to go ahead and get into him. There's a lot to go into there. And he's somewhat of a voice of reason to the crazed General Ripper, uh, who's played by Sterling Hayden, who was actually brought out of retirement for this role uh, that I did not know before looking into that here. Oh, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I got I got some stuff to tell you about him in a minute, but carry on. <laughs> this guy. Uh, now, he's uh, <laughs> Mandrake's called into his office and he's informed that the base is actually about to be put on lockdown. And not only that, but everyone's radios are to be confiscated. And additionally, he is to communicate a specific set of orders to the airplanes that currently are um, airborne uh, right outside of Russian airspace. And he is to inform them that they are to execute wing attack plan R to these B-52 bombers. And after that, we're very shortly introduced to the main group of airmen that we're going to spend the movie with. Those are led by Major Kong, played by Slim Pickens, who was, I'm sure as you saw, Ryan, originally set to be played by Peter Sellers himself in a fourth role that didn't work out. We're going to get into why that didn't happen in a little while. And Major Kong is disbelieving at first that wing attack plan R has just been communicated. But after a minute, he's fired up because he believes that we've entered into nuclear war with Russia at this point. And he's the type of guy who wants to go out, you know, giving them hell and giving them everything he's got. I actually love the the specific uh, quote that he says where he goes, that's it, gentlemen, we've entered into nuclear combat toe to toe with the Ruskies. Because <laughs> he's just that kind of guy, right? And, Slim uh, Dickens is fantastic. <laughs> but I do always get him mixed up with Pat Buttram because they both kind of have that off-color, kind of westerny voice, um, <laughs> almost interchangeable. But we actually do learn very quickly that Wing Attack Plan R is a code for total and complete nuclear annihilation. 
And that's why the major Khan character is so disbelieving at first, until, of course, we, we learn that it's actually true. Now, Ryan, there's a lot that is going on in this film, while also there's not very much going on at the same time. It's, it's actually sure. interesting. It's at times both big and small. I think it's one of those things where the story itself is small, but the implications surrounding it are large. But if you actually take a step back, it's really a pretty small film. And I think, interestingly, a lot of Kubrick's films, you could say the same about conceptually large and logistically small, if you will. So there's a lot for us to discuss. We've got many storied names here in this film, but I think Kubrick's probably looms largest among them all. If I'm not mistaken, this is his only comedy, which is interesting coming from a man known for intensity and intellectualism, right? He's got these very mm-hmm. sort of thoughtful, deliberately paced films outside of this one. It's certainly, these are not the characteristics of a traditional comedy filmmaker, as we would think of one. So my first question to you is, given his pedigree as such a serious filmmaker, do you think that his version of a comedy in Dr. Strangelove works. And do you feel as though if it does work, it's because of those characteristics or perhaps in spite of them, or were you able to see how he can kind of pull it off in a non-traditional manner? Yeah, no, this worked for me across the board Um, from a comedy standpoint. So I think comedy is a, is a very broad term. Um, sure. I, I think in the, in the genre of comedy, this, this would be under the subgenre of satire and yeah, definitely, uh, I think though, as well as being a comedy, it's also a commentary on the dichotomy of mankind. Um, this is sure. kind of something that I wanted to get into with you. So as much as you're asking me a question about did the comedy work, I'll go ahead and toss it back to you and get, cause I, I was curious about your thoughts. I feel like this gets placed to me in the, in the, the lexicon or library of Kubrick very nicely and neatly between paths of glory, which we've covered on this show and 2001, sure. a space odyssey, uh, yeah. which we tried to cover on this show. And it was an episode that is lost to time and maybe we'll get back to it one day, <laughs> but um, Ryan yeah, divulging uh, secrets over here. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> so, you know, I feel like uh, Kubrick has a lot to say about, the capabilities of man, how we can create art, we can create beauty, we can create technology, we can go to space, we can do anything we, you know, our imagination can come up with or transpire. But at the heart of it all, we're also still animals and we can still be capable of animalistic behavior. We're also idiots. And um, so as much as we... You know, especially in 1964, because remember, this is pre-Vietnam era. So, in fact, I think 1964 is when we, Congress declared that we could actually go to war with Vietnam. So, um, Kennedy has just been assassinated. Um, You know, the American public, uh, you know, as we found out in Born on the Fourth of July, which we covered on the show as well, little plugs for past episodes, um, you know, the American public at large at this time still believes in the uh, infallibility of our government. Um, you know, it's still that gung ho world war two era American flag. 
Uh, I mean, it's just starting to change because it's the 60s, which is pretty much when that revolt started to happen. And that's my point. In 1964 is the beginning of the civil rights movement. Um, It's the beginning of the women's lib movement. It's the beginning of the counterculture movement. And it's also the beginning of uh, the televisation of war. So so for the first time, the American public could see what goes on over there uh, to our boys and so forth. So um, this was uh, an interesting time for a movie like this to come out as much as we could watch it now and laugh because these things are also apparent. We know our government... Uh, are, are, you know, is run by a bunch of dum dums. But um, you know, the only thing they did that I didn't do competent. is they got Every elected. single one of them. I don't know what right, country right, yeah. you're in, sir. <laughs> but at the time, <laughs> it, you know, I feel like America, you know, and the world at large didn't maybe have a comprehension of that as much um, because there was no yeah. Twitter and all of that. So, you know, this was kind of an interesting, subtle way to hold a mirror up to, you know, society as a whole, to humankind, to our government, to the leaders of the world that have their finger on the trigger. So I'll ask you, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, when you bring up that film or rather this film having that sort of dichotomy of man element to it, that's a hallmark. Like every single Kubrick film has that, right? right? Mm -hmm. Even down to the standpoint that one of his final films, even though it was well before his death in Full Metal Jacket, the Matthew Modine character has that explicitly on his helmet, right? Where I forget the two, what the two sayings are, but one is like, peace on earth and the other is like you know kill to defend or whatever it is i think it's like and born he's to being kill? born to kill yeah and then the reporter asks him about it and he literally says that very thing he says i think it reflects the dichotomy of man you know and then he asks him about that sure. so that's absolutely a hallmark of what kubrick has been expressing through his entire career and right. in this film specifically so you got to remember even though it's pre-vietnam it's active cold war scare right and mm-hmm. In doing the research, it's it's easy to not really pay attention to the fact that there was a significant amount of the population at the time in the early 60s, possibly late 50s. But when this film came out, that was certain that nuclear war was going to be what ultimately ended the life as we know it here on Earth, whether right. it was within the next few years or decades later. But it wasn't an if it was a when for many, many people, right? We covered and, that on a uh, matinee with John Goodman yeah, absolutely, on this show yeah. in a past episode. Go back to our library, everybody. <laughs> plug, Check plug, it out, plug. baby. <laughs> plug, but, plug, plug, plug. <laughs> <laughs> but man, another plug. Uh, we got to have the little, the little uh, ticker ding, right? We talked about that before. So... So many people had this idea and it still persists to this day. I mean, all it takes is literally one of these things to go off and the entire world is gone. But regardless, Kubrick became obsessed with this idea, right? He's in his like early to mid thirties, I believe at the time he's thinking about what his next film is going to be. So he goes on and he reads like 50 thermonuclear war and missile books, like ahead of going into this project. So he was just really consumed by this project and The interesting thing, so we haven't mentioned yet, but this film was uh, based on a book named Red Alert, short book, about the first couple Mm -hmm. hours of World War III uh, that is triggered and the nuclear war and all of that. So when Kubrick first launched this product, he bought the rights to the film for then $3,500. Not sure what that equates to right now. Bought the rights to adapt the book into a film and was going to make a straight thriller, but then decided as he went on, you know, and considered some of these grandiose ideas and notions then he started to realize like you know the the fact that we're even talking about this is ridiculous and and furthermore it's ridiculous (laughs) that there are what 
a couple dozen people on the face of the entire earth of billions that are ultimately responsible for whether or not we get to persist as a race of people based on their actions and decisions. Like that's madness. That's absolute madness that everything we're doing, (laughs) think of all of the thousands of decisions you've made in the last, however many years. And if some foreign dude, uh, you know, some foreign dictator, totalitarian dude, or even a domestic one, uh, you know, decides that uh, all of a sudden, you know, he's going out uh, in a blaze of glory because, you know, he's getting out ousted or whatever his reasons are or there's push yeah. button and boom done life <laughs> is over as you know it for everyone right. right and what does that guy care if he's of a certain mindset again he wants to burn down the the entire earth uh, on his way out so what does he care sure go ahead and launch that button so it's really i mean when you when you really stop to think about it there's no other reaction but to consider how ridiculous all of this is. And so, but the cool thing is that Kubrick trusted his instincts and he considered, hey, you know what? This is an interesting way to tell this story. Everybody's going to do this. Everybody else would do this as a thriller. I was even going to do this as a thriller. What happens if we reimagine this as a comedy? And then we ended up getting this unique work, right? You may not love this film. Uh, funny thing, when I was younger, I really thought this was probably one of his lesser films. I knew that it was highly regarded, but I mean, come on, this is not a movie that anybody at 13 years old is really going to be able to appreciate for itself, right? Sure. You might say That's you do because the critics are, or you know it's a Kubrick film and you're like wanting to like it, but like you can't really emotionally and intellectually appreciate what this film is about until you've been around long enough to see all the fuckery that goes on and be like, oh yeah, okay, I, I get it now. This is, I like, right. I feel like, Every 10 years you're on Earth, this film becomes less funny and more like potentially realistic scenario. <laughs> right. Yeah, I yeah, mean, I so... think that the 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 spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down, if you will, is definitely Peter Sellers' performance. Yeah. Um, I think even at 13, I would have appreciated his broad comedy and slapstick performance. This is plural. Um, but, uh, just because I was into the Muppets and Monty Python and Mark's brothers and all that stuff. And this is very kind of in line with all of that. Um, but, uh, the commentary, the writing, how smart it is, um, all of that. Yeah, that definitely would have been lost on me. Uh, and so, you know, cinematic convention and all that. Sure. But also how lucky am I that I get to at my age have these, you know, first time viewing experiences. You know, there yeah. are some movies I would go back and be like, man, I wish I could go back and watch that again for the first time. That was fun. And I got to do that with this one. So, you know, <laughs> I got to watch this with a grown man's eyes and got to appreciate it for, for all that it is. And, uh, and, and then go and study it and research it for this show. So yeah, definitely. There's, there's, you know, there's a rabbit hole you can go down with this, with this film and, and, you know, because there's political statements, like you said, social commentary, the broad comedy and all that. There's a lot of moving parts that, that make this film work for me. And it's also yeah. only an hour and a half right in my sweet spot. <laughs> Ryan's favorite, <laughs> the 90 minute movie. Right in my sweet spot. Yeah. yeah. But also to your point from earlier, like it does still feel like a Kubrick film just in terms of it like does. its tone. Right. You know, it still right. has that sort of harsh lighting that he often employs, especially, mm-hmm. you know, which works perfectly in the black and white. We've yep. got, you know, a lot of the very sort of open sets. Right. He uses a lot of space on his sets. Uh, he doesn't yes. just cram it full of stuff. He lets stuff breathe. 
We've got, you know, a lot of the ge geometrical compositions and framing. We've got, you know, the the tracking that he would become infamous for, right? Like, it's not as pronounced as it is in other Kubrick films, but even just mm -hmm. the very first shot of Mandrake when he's introduced, which, by the way, I think is great because you see this printer and then Peter Sellers is completely shrouded by a printout, like just stacks of paper. And then he like throws <laughs> it away and he and the reveal is that he's behind the paper. And then, yeah, that camera tracks down with him and we see it almost looks like the bedroom at the end of 2001 the office at the beginning in that air force base. oh interesting yeah, yeah. so um, you can see a lot of those visual similarities although you know he's still he's he's a guy who loves to shoot with wide lenses even when he's doing his close-ups mm -hmm. right? Um, right so you still get that same sense of scale that accompanies that and so again it really feels like a kubrick film but yes there are some really funny parts and really funny segments. And yeah, to your point, I do feel like a large part of that is with the acting in particular. So we'll analyze that in just a second here. Uh, I did want to ask you if you saw some of the trouble that this production had along the way, some of the troubles that it ran into. Um, Such as? So specifically, we talked about, you know, uh, the whole thing with Peter Sellers not being able to play the fourth role. Um, mm -hmm. We'll get into that in a second. But did you see the thing about the missing film reel? No. Yeah. So the so the editor was working on it's the final sequence when the airplane is basically cruising at super low altitude. And it's right before uh, Major Kong is going to go ahead and jump on the bomb and, and write it and mm -hmm. all of that. And so it's a several minute sequence with a ton of cuts. You got to remember, obviously this is back in the day, old school cutting. So he had spent like two months working on this reel that had literally over a hundred cuts on it, on this one reel lot for the time. Oh, shit. And <laughs> I'll, I'll give you my theory as to what happened here in a minute, but still to this day, it's never been solved, but somewhere along the way, after the film reel was entirely cut and finished and everything, it went missing two weeks before they were set to release the film. And they oh, did wow. not have any detailed notes at all or anything. And so Kubrick had to work with the editor and they had to like piece by piece go through and find copies of all the film and rec and, and use different takes and recall and rebuild the entire reel just from memory with like no other oh, notes wow. or anything. Yeah, Jeez. so you got to wonder how close it was to the original finished edit reel, but of course we'll never know. And then uh, obviously the big thing about it, this film rather, is the whole incident with the movie Failsafe uh, that was right around the corner. I'm sure did you, yes. you looked into that probably, right? I did. Yeah, so this movie was actually not necessarily unique from the standpoint of being a political thriller. As we mentioned, this was originally devised as a straightforward thriller until Stanley Kubrick decided to reinvent it. Now it turns out that there's this other movie that has very similar themes and very similar settings and everything called Failsafe. And it was actually directed by Sidney LeMay starring Peter Fonda. So it was a big studio movie. And that was about to come out at the same time. And given Kubrick's famously lengthy shoots, it would probably come out before his. And he recognized that this was a threat. So what he decided to do to buy himself time and hopefully win a judgment is he sued the studio responsible for failsafe and said that the movie was in violation because the book that the movie was based on was 100% plagiarized from Red Alert, the book that he had got. 
And so as such, the movie never really had a right to get made. And the only thing that he would do is basically say that, like, the film could come out six months after Dr. Strangelove. And so this mm -hmm. went to court and the courts actually found in favor of him. They agreed that this book, Failsafe, was a plagiarized version of Red Alert. And I have I unfortunately wasn't able to learn more about the um, nature of the lawsuit itself. So, like, I don't know if that was legitimate, like if that book really was plagiarized. Or if perhaps it was a scenario where there were some friends on the inside doing some favors. Can't really speak to that. But either way. So, yeah, this big studio movie by Sidney LeMay with Peter Fonda, they judged that it had to wait at least six months until Dr. Strangelove was released before it could come out. And that definitely worked to help Strangelove's profitability. So just a lot of stuff. And then, oh, finally, finally famously, this date will automatically mean something to probably our uh our older viewers and some of our historical buffs, but uh, the release date of this film was November 22nd, 1963. And if that. you don't know automatically why that date is important, it's because that's the date that uh, President Kennedy was assassinated <laughs> in Dallas. Yes. So like they were all set to go <sighs> that night and they had to like pull the plug and ended up waiting like a couple months later. So yep. just, you know, really a lot of, um, various issues that they had along the way. And then, like I said, we'll go into uh, everything that happened with Peter Sellers here in a minute, but do want to go ahead and- This was uh, also Stanley oh, Kubrick's first film, if I'm not mistaken, that he produced himself. Correct. So yeah. as producer. he was tackling all these challenges, you know, he was having to overcome them. He couldn't just defer <laughs> like he would have in the past, you know, with the leader of Paths of Glory or something or, or Spartacus. Uh, he had to actually go figure this shit out and, and work with it. So, um, you know, you want to put your big boy pants on and go run the show? And, and he did. And he killed it. So good for him. <laughs> yeah. His producer that he had been working with for a long time actually decided that he wanted to be a director. And so he had actually started out this project with him, but shortly into it, like approached Stanley and basically said, hey, you know, I don't really want to be a producer anymore. I want to be a director. Is it OK if I pursue that and leave this to you? And he was like, yeah, go ahead. And uh, spoiler alert, the guy didn't turn out to be a very good director. <laughs> Cinematic confession. <laughs> So, <laughs> <laughs> and just yes. to kind of fill in some gaps here, the uh, the Red Alert novel was written by Peter George, um, who uh, arguably maybe didn't get enough credit uh, for writing this, but um, you know because Kubrick came Stanley in, Stanley Kubrick and, taking credit from other people and giving it to I himself. Surely you jest. <laughs> I do not jest, sir. But in all fairness. His version was, like you said, a political thriller. And then sure. when Kubrick started to write the screenplay um, with Peter George, then, you know, it, it, he quickly started to identify the comedic beats and brought in uh, Terry Southern, who uh, wrote Easy Rider yeah. and went on to go write um, for SNL during the 80s and a bunch of other stuff. So uh, Terry Southern was brought in to do Punch Up and add some of those comedic elements. Um, yeah. And then, of course, um, we'll get into this shortly. I know we keep saying that. Uh, but uh, Peter Sellers, uh, you know, injected his brand of humor into it as well through the performances. So anyway. Yeah, definitely. Now, narratively, we're soon introduced to General Buck Turgidson, who is played by George C. Scott, probably my personal favorite character in this entire ensemble. He has a gorgeous secretary who is sunbathing under this light on this bed. She takes a call on his behalf. And after some back and forth where she's passing some messages, he finally comes out of the bathroom wearing nothing but his underwear and this like open uh, Hawaiian shirt with a big old belly hanging out. 
and he gets on the phone and soon learns of General Ripper's orders to the aircrafts and is then summoned to meet with and brief the U.S. president on the situation in the war room. And back at the base, Mandrake soon learns uh, because there's been a radio that's been left out. And so he turns it on and he hears that there's actually civilian broadcasts going on. There'd be no civilian broadcasts during wartime and during nuclear war. So he uh, he then learns that, oh, there's actually been no attack designated from the U.S. government. Great. I can go back and tell Ripper that we can like stop this whole charade and recall the plan uh, wing attack plan R. And so he goes to tell Ripper, but Ripper is not deterred, right? He is uh, long gone over the deep end at this point, and he believes that there is a sinister re- a plot from the Russians to replace our, quote, precious bodily fluids in one of the funnier running gags of the film. And from there, Mandrake realizes that Ripper has actually gone mentally insane. He's far out there and he tries in vain to get this override code from him to get the uh, aircrafts to turn back and not create nuclear war, but it turns out that Ripper is the only person who knows, and so Mandrake's going to spend his time trying to get that out of him. Meanwhile, back in the war room, we're introduced to the final main characters, because yes, it's been approximately 30 or 40 minutes, and we're still introducing (laughs) new characters in this film, because that's how they're rolling this time, and we're introduced to President Merkin Muffley, who is played by Peter Sellers in the second role, and also shortly thereafter, the titular Dr. Strangelove, the third of three Peter Sellers performances, and definitely the most out there and cartoonish of the three. Now, there's a call arranged between the U.S. president and the Russian president, Dmitry Kissov, and they have a very friendly, awkward exchange about the air attack that's been issued by Ripper. I think, Ryan, this might have been my favorite scene in the entire movie, or at least the funniest scene to me in the entire movie, where he's first (laughs) trying to tell him, and he's like, yes, you know, he, uh... Uh, he just did a silly thing there, you know, he's uh, went a little funny and uh, <laughs> launched a nuke uh, on you or whatever. Right. And so, yeah. Well, and then he's like, well, calm down, Dimitri. How do you think I feel about it? I'm crushed. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, great. I, I thought that was yeah. hilarious. Um, yeah. It was almost like a husband trying to cover yeah. up some dumb thing he did to his <laughs> wife or something. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, we're only hearing one side of that conversation. So again, yes. like fucking hats funnier. off to Peter Sellers, like crushing just a one man performance, talking to nobody on the other side. Um, Absolutely. You know, a lot of it done through improv. So yeah. And yeah, exactly. To your point, a lot of that stuff, he was just like off the dome. I believe that entire sequence that I was just talking about was something that he riffed on and like, and it's kind of interesting because Kubrick's reputation in many ways is accurate, but in certain ways it's not because for as meticulous as he may have been when it came to camera and frame and placement and all of that and mm-hmm. uh, uh, continuity, Lighting. all of those sort of things. Yeah, he was actually like really freewheeling when it came to story and like the actual content of what they were shooting. So uh, again, in that famed Missing 2001 episode, we talked about how, you know, he was showing up, you know, every other week and like, hey, we got to go in a completely different direction with this, right? We were going here, but we're missing the thing. We got to go over here. Uh, the right. Shining, right? We Jack Nicholson famously brings up that, you know, he just stopped studying the script because every morning he would show up and Stanley will have completely rewritten the page that they're going to do that day. And so... Mm-hmm. It's almost like you can almost say that he went the other way, that he was almost like borderline 
unprepared. It's not that it's uh, that he was unprepared, though. I think it's just that he's constantly outthinking himself and outsmarting himself, you know? And sure. so, like, so how many times where it's like you have a solution in place that's great, but you can't stop over-engineering it, and then you're like, you know what? No, we got to go in a completely different direction. Everyone's like, dude, what are you talking? It was perfect. You're like, nah, I've been noodling on it for a couple. It's not going to work anymore. Like, God damn it. We got to stop giving him that time to noodle on stuff. Every time he does, he yeah. changes everything. <laughs> well, I mean, that's why he would take, do so many takes, if I'm not mistaken. It's just, you know, because he was constantly fleshing it out in the moment and just seeing where things t took him. He was never so sold on an idea. And I, I read that um, uh, he and Terry Southern would drive to set every day and be rewriting stuff on the way to set that day. Like on yeah. the way to shoot, they were writing new pages or trying new ideas or whatever. So um, and a lot of that was left to your point, uh, to Peter Sellers and, and his performance and, and to kind of go a different way or improv certain things or, or whatever. Um, he said that, uh, I'm sure you saw this, but, uh, he, he never shot Peter Sellers with any less than three cameras because Peter Sellers was usually unable to replicate whatever it is he was doing because he was sure. just going with it and yeah. improving. So it's like, well, then I better get my coverage because I can't go back in a tight and ask him to do it again yeah. uh, or, or, you know, shoot it in a wide or get my reverse or whatever. So he, he would shoot between three to six cameras every time Peter Sellers was in the shot because he's like, this may be, you know, if I get it and it's perfect, um, you know, it might be take 23, but I need to make sure I got it and then we can move on and I don't have to get any coverage. So yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. He has there's a lot of different theories and ideas out there as to why Kubrick did exactly what he did and his different methods and all of that. So another one that I read is that the reason he did so many takes is because and I believe he actually mentioned this himself or it was quoted anyway. But he said that oftentimes actors would come in with a certain idea of the character. And this is where I sort of get into we can go ahead and jump into this conversation here, actually, as part of it, a little, little side tandem here. But. Um, he would say that oftentimes the actors would come in with a sort of preconceived notion of what the character or the scene should be about that he, Kubrick wouldn't necessarily disagree with. And so basically what he would do is he would just shoot take after take after take so that they would sort of like break down and get away from that initial conception and then feel sure. stuff out in the moment and kind of go with different interpretations and stuff like that. So, but, you know, one of the things that I think is most interesting about Kubrick is that for as much as he was a perfectionist and interestingly, for as much as people seem to have enjoyed their experience with him, he seems like one of those people that's like the most micromanaging of micromanagers that you've ever had to experience, you know? And so it's like, I feel like, you know, there, there's never really been like a true director of photography on one of his movies because he's always the director of photography. And I feel like he'd be like pays these people pretty good money to come in and then basically just takes over for them. And, you know, as somebody who's a professional in the field, like I can imagine that if you were brought in for your set for your expertise in sound and then someone was like, Hey, you know, you need to put place the mic over here or, Hey, you know, right. uh, you do this, you do that. Like, wouldn't that kind of upset you and dissuade you from working with that person moving forward? And, and Absolutely how do you, it would. and so do you think that that maybe has something to do with the fact that like, he didn't really have consistent crews and, you know, yes. made films infrequently and never really got Academy Awards. Like, do you think, do you think that his, he his did not style, play well with others? Yeah, exactly. And for, <laughs> does and not so for play well great, with others. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's kind of interesting. Like I, does that, does that affect his reputation for you at all or no? 
Not to me. I didn't have to work with the guy. But yeah, if I was a working (laughs) professional um, and I was on his set, it absolutely would. Yeah. Yeah. If I was working with a control freak that was constantly taking the thing away from me and saying, just let me do it. Fuck right off with that. Like you yeah, can go do right. it yourself. Why are you paying I don't know me, what to bro. tell you. Like, you can do this yourself. Clearly. Right. Don't bring me on. Yeah. And, then, and then turn around the next day and then complain about the stuff that like we have because you didn't listen to me. Right. So now yeah, it's just, it, I will it's, say that, uh, I did see some interviews with some of the camera operators and people that were on set with them and they did speak very highly of him. Yeah. Um, you know, they said that he was very collaborative. Uh, I think that's code for, we're going to do this together. <laughs> so I don't think it was like, I don't think he's such a, it did not sound like he was such a control freak. Like here, let me do it. Like you're incompetent and I'm just going to do it myself. I don't think that was the way he was. I, it sounds more like it's collaborative, like, but he, but he wasn't just like, here's what I like a lot of directors. This is my vision. Go give me my vision. Um, to the DP, for example, um, who, by the way, on this was a gentleman by the name of uh, Gil Taylor, who went on to go shoot Star Wars, A New Hope, Episode 4, just a handful of years after this. Um, and then also uh, Flash Gordon, which is on our list and I hope gets picked soon. So, yeah, yeah I, I think it was more like, what if we tried this? And then he would take the camera. But he also, to his credit, was very knowledgeable about camera and lenses. He was a photographer sure, yeah. himself. And so I think that... You know, from a cinematographer's standpoint, I think that they appreciated that he could speak their language and not just go do it, you know, whatever, make it happen. It's like, why don't we try, you know, this 20 millimeter Zeiss Jenna from Germany, you know, whatever, and then we'll put it on the Airflex. We're going to use these small little cameras. We're going to do handheld because, for example... Um, the, the, the stuff on the battlefield, when the soldiers are storming the air force base to go get, uh, general Ripper, um, you know, that footage looks very more, much more documentary. It's all handheld, very rough around the edges versus the war room, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, very polished and studio and, you know, perfect and symmetrical and all of this. So, uh, you know, to get certain moods and, and, um, and, and, you know. Uh, feelings and vibes out of certain scenes, you know, I think that it was more of a collaboration, but at least he was able to speak their language, which it sounds like they, they respected. So there is that as a concession. I I do agree with you that he was probably very hard to work with in that regard. Yeah. So the vibe that I got from, uh, from, from people is that like, he's the biggest pain in the ass you ever worked with and you hate working with him, except for the fact that for whatever reason, you end up doing your best work for him, right? And that's, like, what I hear from everybody, right? Even Douglas Trumbull. Like, Douglas Trumbull, like, hated Kubrick for a long time because he he had so many innovations that he introduced in 2001, and Kubrick just took all of that credit, not even sharing the Academy Awards with any of them, right? And just saying that he was the sole visual effects producer, and so, like... I understand the resentment from a lot of those people, right? And if I'm being honest, it, it is unfortunate because I do love Kubrick. He's probably my favorite peer director, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in maybe not like writer director, but just in like terms of like being a peer director, certainly up there, you know. But it's very interesting to contrast his style as, again, a director with someone like uh, Raja Mooli, right? So when I think of Kubrick, it's like, okay, was he the greatest director? Because we hear about how he didn't really play well with others. And think about the term, a director, 
What does a director do? Directs. Who does he direct? Gives Other people. He right. provides directions and tells them what to do. So really, I mean, if you, if you take a step back, like the SS Rajamuli approach is I'm going to bring the best out of all of these people and have them do their best work. And we're all going to collaborate and it's all going to come together in this very wonderful thing, which is why you'll hear him say a quote like, you know, I wanted to do the the not do not do dance scene as one take. But my editor was like, no, we can't do it. We've done this. We've done that. Blah, blah, blah. And so I, you know, I as a director ended up defecting to my editor and his talents and his expertise, even though I might have made a different decision. And there's a humility that goes along with that, you know, and especially in filmmaking and especially with directors, we know humility is one of the last things that you'll ever see. And not that it's necessary, right? You kind of have to be, you know, if you're going to be that successful at sports or music or movies or whatever, you kind of have to have that ego and that drive, right? But To then just, you know, be full Alfred Hitchcock the entire time or Stanley Kubrick, it -hmm. does make me, I don't want to say, you know, it doesn't lessen their pedigree as an artist, but it does color the way I look at them as a director because I kind of feel like those are two different things. Yeah. In fact, quite the contrary. I think that it increases my perspective on him as an artist because he edited all his own films too um yeah, for sure you know he was in the editing bay and and you know i i watched uh, in preparation for this show i watched an interview with him where he said that uh you know a lot of edit uh directors will pass their work off and go start work on yeah. the next film and then come back in and check out you know what the editor's doing make some notes let the editor do his business but he's like if you really want your vision on celluloid that you know for the for, for the finished product He's like, in my opinion, you have to be there start to finish and go sure. see it all the way through, which he did. Uh, so f- that's that's an art. Yeah, you you can't the fact hustle. that he was a yeah, yeah, he's so good at multiple things. Like he's fucking crazy talented. So tip of the hat. But it must have been frustrating to be a subcontractor, uh, you know, <laughs> and then just always have your toys taken over. You know that sucks. Uh, and then quick note about Rajamuli. Uh, you know it is worth mentioning that. Uh, all the department heads you're talking about were like his dad, his cousin, his wife, his mom. <laughs> so it was a family affair. So, you know, it's like little yeah. little Ray Ray down the street said I should do this. So I have to see him at the family barbecue on Saturday. I thought I would uh, just avoid some conflict. <laughs> Let him have his way. His aunt's been like totally on my ass about doing this. And so like I've been promising her for the last three movies. I, I, I owed her this for a right. long time. <laughs> yeah. Gonna make gonna make the holidays awkward. Yeah. <laughs> We're not doing that. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, uh, when we get back to the narrative of Dr. Strange, we have the president Muffley who has just invited the Russian ambassador into the war room because, uh, again, he is very familiar that this wing attack plan R was issued and that they have a rogue, a, uh, a general that they can't get to turn anything around. So they're going to invite the Russians in so that they can try to work together to stop the missile attack from happening, basically. And he's going to give the Russians a chance to defend themselves, largely to the chagrin of the George C. Scott character. And he's going to show them the flight patterns and the missile targets so that they can hopefully defend themselves and again, prevent the initiation of World War III through nuclear war. And after that, the ambassador arrives and quickly tells him of this doomsday device, the one that was referenced at the top of the film that we know about, but nobody in the war room or the American government knows about. By the way, so uh, real quick, I do just want to mention this. So uh, you know how uh, Dr. Strangelove wears the, he has like the one black glove that he wears. 
yes. uh, in the wheelchair. I don't know if you saw this, um, but that black glove was actually Stanley Kubrick's glove. Yep. <laughs> and uh, he used to apparently help them set up the lights and he would always burn his hands. So he bought this pair of gloves and everybody always thought it was weird that he wore black gloves because they just seemed like sinister or something. And so yes. like that was really one of those things where Sellers was just like, oh, sinister character. Let me grab one of those and stole it and totally put it in there. And apparently that was very common of Sellers just sort of grabbing stuff and using it and working it into his performances. Right, which then gave him the 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 rogue zombie hand, you know, the Nazi hand and stuff, always trying yeah. to get out of their stuff. That that hand went bad. <laughs> By the way, uh, I think it's a. I mean, I know there's. It doesn't really matter what it is, but uh, I believe that it is a malfunctioning mechanical hand. That's what I believe. Oh, okay. Is. Yeah, that's fair. I'll go yeah. along with that. It reminded <laughs> me of in. Um, uh, Jedi or Empire when uh, Luke lost his hand, he had to put the black glove on and then it was kind of like ominous because like the dark side from Vader and all of that, you know, a yeah, lot of ties to Star Wars. Nothingness. So there's like a void. Right, there. Yeah. Yeah. Cause Vader had the black gloves and the whole black thing. So then, you know, you could see like the twinges of his hand going, but you know, the, the little bits of dark side coming into Luke and um, you know, we haven't even talked about uh, James Earl Jones is in this, who is Darth Vader. <laughs> Yeah, um, of course, the DP, Gil Taylor. So, yeah, a lot of ties to Star Wars in this film. <laughs> yeah. But uh, to to that point, you know, we've just mentioned it throughout this entire review so far. And that's just that it's really the the actors and the performances and the decisions of the actors that really work to sell this film. No more so than, you know, Peter Sellers is probably the most famous and the most recognized. And there's that degree of difficulty that gets factored in there because he's playing three different roles. Right. So. Right. But in this giant ensemble, uh, do you like did you feel that Peter Sellers was the most impressive? Was there somebody else uh, that you feel like kind of outshine him? Or do you think that like every single person kind of did as well as the other um, or again, did you think that Sellers really carried the film and carried the ensemble? I mean, it's hard not to give credit to Sellers because he's playing three characters. So he's got an edge yeah. just by proxy of having more meat, you know, to play with. And, you know, he gets the fun stuff when everybody else is, you know, doing very subtle beats. You know, his is the broad. His is Dr. Strangelove doing the Hitler salutes and, you know, going all crazy and, and all of that. Um, yeah. A little more subtle with, uh, you know, the other two characters, obviously. But um, George C. Scott surprised me. Now, I have not seen a lot of George C. Scott films. You have seen Patton. You talked mm -hmm. about it on a previous episode of the show. Um, I have not seen Patton. But um, George C. Scott, to me, was... Man, I mean, he just was crushing. Like, it was very... Um, he was doing some real Mel Blanc stuff like Looney yeah. Tunes style humor to me, like very Bugs Bunny-esque um, style humor. And I just was eating it up with a spoon um, his, <laughs> from his facial expressions to, you know, chewing the gum in the war room, just chomping it down. Um, you know, a lot of those scenes were very uh, reminiscent. Uh, you could see where he inspired um, Tim Burton's Mars Attacks movie. Uh, that's what, you know, a lot of that war room stuff, uh, kind of mm -hmm. brought, cause I'd never seen this movie, but I've seen Mars attacks many times. Um, I could see this, you know, that kind of informing Rod Steiger's performances, uh, sure. or performance in, in Mars attacks going against Jack Nicholson's president character. I'm always wanting to nuke things and, you know, we've got to blow them up, you know, always wanting to go for the most violent option. Um, and then, you know, even with Peter Sellers, you know, I'm, I'm very familiar with, 
uh, his Pink Panther stuff. That you know, that's how okay. I was introduced to Peter Sellers uh, when I was a kid. So, um, but but outside of that, uh, I haven't seen you know that many more that much more of his library either. I need to go back and get get on some of his stuff. Um, but but his performance in this. I could see being very inspirational to an actor like Gene Wilder. It was very Gene Wilder-esque. Like, yeah, for um, sure. Dr. Strangelove, I could see direct correlations to Willy Wonka from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Um, not from an ex-Nazi standpoint, but just that dark <laughs> delivery that, you know, let him die kind of humor, you know? Like, oh, no, don't, stop, you know, kind of thing. Like, I could see yeah. Peter Sellers delivering that line very easily. Um, sure. Uh, to the same effect, so... Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, Slim Pickens was fantastic, um, you know, kind of playing it straight, but, you know, still leaning into the absurdity of the situation. Um, yeah, it was all, everybody was who they needed to be. Let me put it to you that way. Like, I just felt like everybody played their role just perfect. This movie yeah. was not um, always guffaw, knee slapping, laugh out loud, hysterical. Correct. I can't say this is yeah. a... Uh, you know, a funny comedy like Monty Python and the Holy Grail or Duck Soup or something like that. Um, but man, when it landed, it really landed. And when it was, uh, you know, kind of stoic and quiet, you know, it made you think as well. And so it's just perfect. Like the, the way it had to thread that needle was it just seems very difficult to to not only write, but to direct and edit, you know, getting your comedy beats, the, the timing of it all and all of that. Um, how about yeah. you? Yeah, so... It's kind of interesting because the Slim Pickens character is great casting, but like mm -hmm. I wouldn't say just based on that. And from what I've seen, that like Slim Pickens is a great actor. I think that's him. And from what I understand, that very much was the case. They were like Slim Pickens is Major Kong, right? Like when the cameras were off, it was the same exact guy to the point that he sure. even like rolled up on the set wearing a cowboy hat and spurs and boots and everything. Right. So mm -hmm. I think that's just one of those things where you have a person who's already a well-defined personality in real life. And so you just need to find the right role for them. But like, sure. you can't cast him in anything else pretty much. Right. I think the only other thing I remember him being in was the super brief cameo at the beginning of RoboCop in the bathroom or whatever, like super quick. Right. So, mm -hmm. but, but that character works perfectly for this film. Like, it's great. Like I said, he, he had me like rolling, rolling around with a lot of his deliveries. But in terms of like a performance, like is one of those things where, you know, he's just being him. Kind of like how every movie Robert Downey Jr. has ever done is just Robert Downey Jr. being Robert Downey Jr. But as Tony Stark <laughs> or right. as who the yeah. hell ever. Right. Yeah. So it was kind of that thing. But like George C. Scott. Now, this is a guy who's had a really interesting career. First of all, for as talented as he and Peter Sellers are, you'll find their filmographies rather lacking in substance. Like they don't have nearly as many movies as their reputation might dictate. And even the movies sure. that are there might surprise you. And a large part of this is because in, in their respective ways, both of them were incredibly difficult people to deal with. Uh, oh, Seller, really? Yeah. So, so Peter Sellers uh, actually was a, a very hardcore sex addict, especially later in his career. Uh, to the point that it became kind of his like guiding principle in life. He, he's even like he even like was interviewed and went on camera saying is that the only thing he lives for at this point in his life is to uh, search for the perfect orgasm. And that's all he wants to do with his life. Right. So there are a lot of difficulties, you know, drug abuse factored into that. So 
uh, he was a very difficult person in terms of like not so much from a he's going to go crazy and storm the set, though he didn't have those moments, but more from like an HR point of view. Right. Uh, stuff, <laughs> right. stuff that definitely would not fly in 2023 that a lot of people had to put under the wraps at the time, I'm sure. You yeah. know, so troubled personality there, uh, you know, and look, he was a brilliant he was a brilliant guy. Right. And that's just how it is. Right. Most brilliance is a little off. It's just the way it is, unfortunately. Right. And then George C. Scott was like the other way where he was this like hardcore ex-Marine guy who was like always picking fights, enjoyed getting in fights, right? Saw it as like a sign of respect. So he would constantly challenge directors as soon as he would show up on set uh, and try to go like toe to toe with them. Was very demanding, used to yell at people a lot, like all the assistants were terrified of him. And so as a result, he didn't get nearly as much work as he would have otherwise. And what's really interesting is this is probably my favorite George C. Scott performance of all time. And from what I can tell, it's really the only outwardly comedic performance that he's done. Certainly the most broadly comedic performance that he's done. And you may have seen that this was much to his chagrin. He actually did not want to play this role this way to the point that he was actually upset when he saw the first screening at the premiere because he said, that's not my performance. That's not the right. character that I created for this film. And the reason that it didn't play that way is because Stanley Kubrick wanted a very cartoonish, over-the-top performance. But that wasn't George C. Scott's thing. He's a very traditional actor. He actually started on stage. So he believes in respecting acting and getting to the root of, of drama, right? He's not interested in comedy. So Kubrick basically manipulated him and did the old one-on-one -on -one thing, right? All right, George, you know, you see it one way, I see another. Here's what we're going to do. Let's go ahead and do it one way, your way with the drama. And of course, you know, we'll end up using that for the actual take. But just to satisfy my curiosity, I would love to see you do one for me in a really over-the-top way, just so we can sort of move on from it and get it out of there, right? And so he would give him that. And then in invariably, like for each scene, Kubrick would find a way to manipulate Scott into giving him like one over the top take. And like that was the take that made it in every single time, even if Kubrick had to shoot 23 other dummy takes just to satisfy George C. Scott to get to the one that he knew that he was going to use that he needed. <laughs> so and 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 to me, it's like for the life of me, like I don't understand this at all. Like, it's so funny and it's so good. And to your point, it's so Mel Blank and he's doing like you can almost hear him doing like ha cha 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 cha, right? Like, right. And he's got yeah. these facial expressions and even doing pratfall stuff. You know, the scene where he's in the war room and I don't know if it was intentional or not, but he like falls and like does a somersault and like rolls up and Supposedly like poses like. Locked. Yeah, it, 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 it seemed like he accidentally fell and then just improv it and rolled with it. But then yep. it's also interesting because. If you know that you don't want those performances, like, wouldn't you do the opposite? Like, wouldn't you take, wouldn't you tank those takes and be like, ah, oh, well, I fell. Can't do it your way anymore. Sorry, Stanley. <laughs> yeah. And maybe he was just younger in his career and he was trusting. Maybe it's like, maybe Stanley Kubrick's the one that betrayed him. And he's like, never again. I'll never again. Let someone do that to me. Curse you, Kubrick. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, but it's funny because so again, George C. Scott was just known as being super domineering and would not really show respect to a lot of directors. Kubrick knew this. And so he came up with a scheme ahead of time 
and he found out that George C. Scott, you know, he's George C. Scott's a proud dude, thinks he's good at everything, fighting all this stuff. George C. Scott fancied himself something of a chess player. So mm-hmm. Stanley Kubrick found this out and he's like, I'm going to put a chess board out there. And the first thing I'm going to do is challenge him to a chess game. And, you know, we'll see who ends up beating who. And Stanley being the infamous chess master that we all know at this point, uh, just wiped the floor with him. But because of George C. Scott's ethos, like as a fighting man, the fact that he got licked at a competition made him respect this man. And so that's how he was able to basically get those takes out of him that George Scott would have never done for anybody else. Interesting. Yeah. Love so, that. But, but again, it's just like, though I you talked about it before, the way he's like obsessively chewing gum, right? The way that he like takes a call from his like sexy young girlfriend in the war room in the middle of this huge like missile right. debate, right? He's like, I'm sorry, baby, but don't worry. Bucky will be there. Just you go on and rev up that engine. You wait for me. I'll be right there, okay? Like, and he's, he's by the, the way, he's using a lot of like, uh, bomb-oriented euphemisms like start your countdown before you hit the zero, you know, oh, Bucky yeah. will be there, blah, 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 <laughs> make, to make you explode and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so, in the opening yeah. scene, he's like, I'll be back before you can say blast off. <laughs> yeah, correct. Yeah, that's it. So uh, there's a lot of of bomb and war-related euphemisms that he's uh, dropping about, you know, having sex and lovemaking. So there yeah. again, though, continuing that theme that we opened with, with the B-52 bombers, you know, and all the, the sex nuance and stuff like that. So it's very yeah. interesting that the through line uh, that that carries along. <laughs> yeah, dude, I love I love the little moment when he's on the phone and he's like, oh, whatever. And he just like slaps his big belly. This <laughs> is like this is these little touches, <laughs> these little moments and things that he does that are so hilarious. And again, yes. it's like, dude, if you don't want the credit for that performance, I'll take it. Like you could, you know, right. do the digital face swap and I'll be like, yes, that's me. Cause like, I, again, if, if George C. Scott had done more of that in his career, I would actually enjoy his, his performances even more than uh, I already do, you know, because again, sure. it's like, we get it. You're, you're the tough guy. Okay. But like, you know, lots of people can do, you know, tough brooding sullen, but like this level of sort of like vaudevillian cartoonishness, but that's like also like engaging uh, and, yeah. and like, uh, again, like that's to me, like that's even more of a talent maybe than, you know, sure. being able to give some Shakespearean soliloquy in the middle of, you no, know, I mean, it's Central like, Park. because I see George C. Scott as kind of like a Burt Lancaster character. Right. And yeah. so it'd be like Burt Lancaster guy. doing like Looney Tunes style yeah. comedy, you know, slapstick <laughs> shit, like him it being in Mel Brooks is the producer. it's him. Right. Yeah, correct. And so, yeah, playing against type and all of that, but he's very good at it to your point. So, um, especially since, you know, with, with very few exceptions, it's really him and sellers carrying a lot of those comedy beats, you know, throughout the film. So, um, kudos to him. Uh, I loved every minute of his performance. Yeah. Same, same here. And then I also thought that Sterling Hayden was probably, so to me, there's like three people that like really crushed it and that's Sellers, it's Scott, and then it's Sterling Hayden. And you had mentioned that you actually had some things about him that you had uh, either found out or wanted to mention. Yeah, real quick, like a little bit about uh, Sterling Hayden. Um, You know, we talked a little bit on this show in in previous episodes. Um, You know, it comes up every time we cross into the fifties, you know, in the McCarthyism era and all the, um, red trials for communism and, and all of mm-hmm. that, uh, going on at the time. And, uh, he actually, for a brief moment in time was a member of the communist party and went to mm-hmm. meetings, 
heard what they had to say. And then um, during the McCarthy era was brought onto the stand and he actually named names. And uh, a lot of this was due to, this is according to him in an interview in the 1980s. Some documentarians went on his boat. He was a big boatsman and, um, and he was very drunk and, uh, and pretty stoned. But um, yeah, they went on his boat and uh, he declared that he had to live with that for the rest of his life. And he hated yeah. it, that, that he named names. But that when he got off the stand, he was given a call by who was at the time the president of the Screen Actors Guild and Mr. One Ronald Reagan. Mm. And Reagan uh, congratulated him and said, you're a real American, blah, blah, blah. You did your duty. We've got all these roles lined up for you. We're going to, you know, roll out the red carpet. You're re- the rest of your career is going to be fantastic, kid. You did the right thing. And he felt so guilty and he hated himself for it uh, to the point that in the end, at the end of his life, he said that to him that said more about Ronald Reagan's character than anything that yeah. Ronald Reagan would support a turncoat, um, you know, that someone that wasn't loyal to his friends, um, that would go be a rat and a narc and all of that. So, um, yeah. you know, uh, th- that meant a lot to Sterling Hayden, uh, but he was coming off of that, you know, guilt and all of that. You know, we, we talk about this <clears throat> on this film quite a bit where, you know, it, it, we have to constantly remember how crazy World War II was, how big that yeah. was. It was the introduction of the nuclear bomb, um, you know, Hitler and, and the Holocaust and the Pacific Theater and all these things that make great movies to us now. But in 1964, you know, we're only a decade or so, you know, 15 years removed from that. So, sure. um, you know, it wasn't that long ago, you know, that that all that was going on. Again, like, you know, to us now, that would be like 2010, 2011, you know, yeah. um, that the end of World War Three happened or whatever. It's like, oh, shit. You know, you knew people that were in that war. You know, people that acted in this film were in that war. So, yeah, yeah um, all that to say. Um, in fact, I think Sterling Hayden was in that war. Uh, I think he fought in World War Two. So, yeah, it's, um, you know, the, this to then go and play a a general that was bringing about the apocalypse and stuff like that. He had a lot of personal connections to this role and yeah. uh, with the commies and, you know, uh, bringing fluoride to infect our bodily fluids and stuff like that. Um, he could kind of see the ridiculousness of all that because he just went through all that through the McCarthy era and he was able to bring that into his performance. That's that's really interesting because one of the things that I had noted about the role that I didn't really notice in previous viewings, because again, I think, you know, the the ridiculousness of the precious bodily fluids line and the fact that it gets brought up over and over, like that's even even being a younger person that doesn't necessarily appreciate the rest of the film, like it's still just funny as a sort of odd non sequitur sure. of sorts, right? Right. But so, you know, so so that sticks with you and his performance kind of stands out, but what I noticed this time, having not seen it in a very long time, probably a decade or so, is like the intensity that Sterling Hayden brought to that performance. Now, sure. when you look at comedic intensity, it has a certain vibe to it, right? There's always a sort of little wink and a nod that you're given, right? So like even when you're watching Tom Cruise as the Les Grossman character in Tropic Thunder... And he's just going like full fucking nuts. Go fuck yourself. Blah, blah, blah. Frothing at the mouth. Like there's still a little glint in his eye that lets you know that like he's in on the joke. Right. Like. Right. It's a comedic intensity that he's bringing. 
And what I think is most interesting about Sterling Hayden's performance in this comedy film is that the intensity that he brings to that performance, the look in his eyes and all of that is as though it is from a thriller. It is from a dramatic thriller like in his, like the the intensity with which this character is manifesting all of these thoughts and ideas and fomenting this language that's coming out of his mouth that's this sort of like direct through line from his thoughts and the xenophobia and everything that's going along with him like you just you see how deeply ingrained that is in this character and now that you're mm-hmm. bringing this up it makes perfect sense because he's culling the intensity of these emotions and this regret and this burning passion and, and and all of the emotions that you just discussed that must have gone into this decision and the subsequent emotions that resulted from that. So, so like that's very clearly baked into that performance. And I, I, again, I thought it was just like, he was delivering a very intense performance and, and et cetera, et cetera. But now as you're bringing sure. that out, like that obviously is informing what he's doing here. Um, yeah. And it's really interesting to note. And and then as such, that must be the reason that he retired, right? And he probably felt guilty about that and retired from acting. And then Kubrick brought him out to do this one role. And maybe for him, it was a sort of therapeutic thing where he could just address and be the person that the extreme version of that person that he sort of was in that moment on stand and really just cathartically exercise that, you know? Yeah, I guess like that's kind of he... what we're seeing. Um, fam- because of everything he went through that I just described, he famously disliked Hollywood. Uh, you know, saw how fake it was. It was all full of shit. And yeah. so he kept trying to see his way out. And then he kept getting calls for more roles and they paid real well. And, um, you know, he kept getting put in movies like this. And so he just kept showing up. So, uh, when he finally was able to see his way out and have enough money to retire and go live on a boat for the rest of his life, uh, he was so good for that man. Um, yeah. But, you know, just think of how, because his, you know, he mentions the bodily fluids a couple of times in the first act of the film, but then he monologues about exactly what he means by that and describes yeah. about the fluoride and, and how the Ruskies never drink water. They only drink vodka. And so they're putting fluoride in our water for mind control to make us more uh, influenced to communism and all these things. Now, first off, that's a very real conspiracy theory. I remember hearing about yep. this when I was a kid. Um, at the time, it was very famous, um, it, you know, right along with chemtrails or, you know, any one of those uh, famous yeah, all the conspiracy hits. theories. Right, right. Yeah. Put it on the Greatest Hits album. <laughs> um, but imagine monologuing because uh, it, it's... It's no surprise to me that you never would have paid attention to his seriousness because he's got to, you know, deliver all those lines in that seriousness up against Peter Sellers, who during that monologue where he's describing all of this is sitting literally almost on his lap right next to him on this very small couch. And Sellers is in the foreground. So your eyes are automatically drawn to what he's doing because He's the slapsticky one, you know, acting all John Cleesey, you know, from Monty Python. Sure. Um, so, you know, whereas um, Hayden is is more stoic and, you know, he but but if you watch Hayden, you're right. Like he believes what he's saying in this role in that moment. And he's really uh, driving those moments home so much so that then he wanders off into the bathroom and to somehow mild comedic effect kills himself. Yeah. But a lot of it, uh, the, again, like going back to the the seller's performance and the seller's show that he's selling here, no pun intended, um, 
you know, it's it's his response to when that gunshot, we all kind of know what's coming. And then when yeah. the guy, and then Sellers is like, can I get you anything? Blah, blah, blah. How about a towel? You know, this and that. And then all of a sudden you hear the gunshot and then just like the deadpan look on Sellers' face when he realizes what just happened. The, the only man that knew these codes uh, to cancel this nuclear holocaust that's about to happen to the globe just killed himself. So yeah. now what? <laughs> and yeah. um, that's... That's the humor. That's the the very, very dark humor that we're being delivered here in spades. And it's just so good. Yeah. That is a funny moment, though, because as you're saying, it, it does kind of work contrary to the sort of standard rule of comedy, which is the comedies and the surprise, right? Because in this sure. case, it's actually the opposite. The comedy is in the lack of surprise. Like, the comedy is the fact that we know what's coming, but Peter yes. Sellers' character doesn't. And so right. it's kind of a, a very interesting comedic note to 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 look at there. And it's all very subtle, these yeah. things. They're all very subtle, but man, do they work for me. Yeah, definitely. And and again, to your point, you know, from the beginning of the show, uh, that's why we look at these types of films this closely, because you would never think it. But then, you know, you pull back some of these layers and it's like, oh, yeah, you know, there are these little details that you pick up. You just, sure. just got to be willing to look is all like so many Brilliant. things. Right. Yep. So now. Uh, we talked a lot about Peter Sellers. Uh, the one thing that I will just mention for anybody, and I'm sure it seems like, you know, we've done, we did similar research, so you're probably familiar with this, but just the initial uh, takes of the president and how the character was conceived initially. And that is yes. that the president was basically ripped in the earlier versions. The president was ripped out of the hospital, deathly ill and brought into the war room. And so for the entire movie, uh, the president is battling this severe cold and apparently one of his favorite props, Sellers' favorite props, that is, was an inhaler that he would use. And apparently, mm -hmm. like, he just thought this was super funny and the cast and crew thought it was hilarious and everybody was just busting up over it. And then after they shot most of his scenes, Kubrick was like, hey, Peter, we got to talk, you know. It just isn't working, right? I'm realizing that we have all these wacky characters, but there's no straight man. There's no straight man in the war room. Every single person in the right. war room is wacky. So, like, really, we should have the president be the sane one and the voice of reason. And so we basically need to go back and reshoot all of your takes and have you do it as though you're not sick. So, right. But the interesting thing is that there are still echoes and remnants of some of those earlier shots where he was playing it that way that made it into the film. So if you actually look at the very first scene where he's introduced, I don't know if you picked up on this, but you we were introduced to the president and he's sitting there at the table and he's addressing everyone and he's like shoving a little napkin or tissue rather into his sleeve. And so, again, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and that's one of those remnants because in the earlier I didn't shoot, notice he that. was just coming off of this cold or whatever. So uh, in, in some scenes, you'll actually see that, like, the inhaler is, like, there on the desk in front of him. So uh, because, again, you know, it's just they've got to save money, right? Each reshoot sure. costs money. So, hey, you know, if there's a little lack of continuity here, but it saves us 10 grand because it it's a Peter Sellers shot and the guy's hella expensive, like, cool, you know, let's do it. So. Yep. Because that's the other thing, too. Actually saying it out loud, I wonder I wonder if, like, a large part of the reason why Peter Sellers ended up costing so much is because of Kubrick's reshoots. Because <laughs> it's like, look, dude, I'm the most expensive guy out here. 
and you want to keep calling me back for reshoots. Like, yeah, I have to charge you a premium for those because they're not scheduled. So like maybe it was like right. his OT, like his original salary was like a buck 50. But then once he stacked all the OT on reshoots, it added up to a mil. <laughs> not sure, but that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Worth every penny, though. I mean, without yeah, Peter course. Sellers, I don't know who, who would have done that. Like who, yeah. who the backup would have been for that role. Well, and he's even, so iconic. Sure. And even just, I mean, there's, it's a, it's a bit of stunt casting, right? It's a, the, the Snoop Dogg and Martha Stewart show, right? Like, well, I have to at least watch five minutes of this thing because that's just insane, right? Like hearing that Peter Sellers is going to play three different, completely different characters who, sure. you know, two of whom interact with one another, like, well, of course, in the I'm same room. Yeah. That, right. So yeah, yeah. You, you pay Peter Sellers the million dollars because, you know, he, that alone is going to be worth three to $4 million to the movie going public. Right. So right. it's a wise investment, even if he didn't do as much like, you know, work as other people or something like that, you know? Yeah. Like you're not getting paid for he, your I mean, work. the, the movie was results. very profitable and it was nominated for best picture. So yeah, yeah, I mean, it worked for a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. Now, back at the base, narratively speaking, uh, to your point that you just referenced, General Ripper fears that in the event that he is captured by the Ruskies, he will not stand up to torture and will talk. And so instead of leaving that potential door open, he goes into the bathroom and he shoots himself in a, well, uh, comically paced and timed scene. And as a result, nobody knows what the code is to issue this recall. And the only clues that we have are these hasty scribbles on this notepad that Mandrake is looking at that sort of looks like a crossword puzzle. And he notices that there are a couple words, uh, something of essence uh, that keep getting uh, repeated over and over and over. And he ends up saying like, oh, okay, you know, it's definitely a combination of, you know, the first letter of these three words because they keep popping up on all of this guy's like notepad and everything. So then we get kind of actually a very interesting and funny sequence where he figures this out and now he just needs to communicate the information to the government via phone or however. But a U.S. soldier uh, that is just attacking the base uh, comes in and is basically like holding him up and... Mandrake is trying to convince him, like, look, dude, like, I, this is what's happening. I have these codes. If you don't let me talk to the president, there's going to be nuclear war and annihilation. And the guy just kind of gives him these, like, blank, suspicious stares back and is like, yeah, OK, do what you got to do. So Mandrake ends up finding a payphone and he's trying to use the operator to get the president on the line, but he doesn't have enough change to make the call. And so he like <laughs> is like going through his things like, do you have 30 cents? And like, no, he doesn't. And so then he's like, oh, OK, see if you see if the president will take a collect call. He won't. Oh, crap. OK. Uh, and then he's like, you soldier, uh, there's a vending machine over there. Shoot that and get out the change. And he looks over and he's like. Sir, that's that's property of the Coca-Cola company. I'm going to do that, but uh, you're going to have some uh, some pretty important people to answer to. And like just the way that he's like not understanding what's going on and just constantly like, no, I can't do that. No, I can't do that. Very funny. Um, and so he ends up obviously he's able to get the change that he needs. He ends up issuing the recall codes. <laughs> Uh, and so Colonel Bat Guano, by the way, we haven't even <laughs> yeah, talked about the silliness right. of all these fucking names. And the names movie. are hilarious. Totally and slapstick names. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, all of the names are Terry Southern. So it's okay. kind of, yeah, it's funny because 
we talked before about how sort of Kubrick was very uh, reticent about giving other people credit. Uh, when Terry Southern was brought in, he was a big counterculture author at the time. I forget the name of the book, yeah. but he wrote a book that had blown up and brought him a lot of attention. And so because he was a hot name, everybody was like, oh, Terry Southern came on, you know, uh, Kubrick's Red Alert film and totally changed it up. And, you know, it, it was going to be a thriller. And then he single handedly turned it into like a comedy. And so the funny thing is Kubrick being who he is, like he's kind of bristling at all this talk, right? Because he's like, actually, I turned it into a comedy beforehand. That's why I brought Terry in. Like he's cool, right. but he didn't do as much as you guys think. And so then apparently it got so big that like Kubrick had to like kind of start going back and like actually literally going out there and saying like, guys, relax. Terry didn't do as much as you think, which kind of pissed Terry Southern <laughs> off, as you might think. Right. So Kubrick can be definitely kind of juvenile when it came to sharing credit like that. Um, but it is interesting to note that all of the character names uh, were Terry Southern names. So all of the ridiculous, we didn't even, you know, the, the guy's name is Turgidson, right? Like Turgid, like there's right. just, there's a lot of like using words to make Like names I said, Jack D. Ripper, Correct. you know, the guy yeah. that's bringing death to, to the whole, uh, <laughs> the whole world is Jack the Ripper. You know what I mean? It's all these uh, little names. Yeah. yeah. I, you, even then, just, you know, even the, the Russian president is Kissoff. Kissoff, yeah, Kiss right. Kissoff, right? like, <laughs> and what what was the president's name? Um, Merkin. Oh, Muffley. That's what it was. Merkin Muffley. Merkin Muffley. Right. So you know, both Merkin is like a pubic hair thing, and then Muff, you know, is a pubic hair thing. So it's like you know, yeah. he's kind of the the big pussy in the room. I was going to say, which is funny because just... they intentionally drew him up to be a pussy. So that's what right, that is yeah, from there, right? Right. Like, it's funny because these things seem like tangents, but if you actually break them down, they're only really one degree removed. It's not as far yes. away as you might think. Like you can really see <laughs> how they made those t connections right there once you break it down. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now, uh, again, narratively, we've got the B-52 with Kong and all of these uh, aircraftsmen and that they've actually been hit by a Russian miss missile. And as a result, it's downed their communications. So when the recall is issued, they're actually not able to receive it. So they're still under the impression that they've engaged in nuclear war with Russia and they're losing uh, fuel. They're flying super low to the ground so that they can be under radar. And they basically decide like, hey, you know what? If we're going to go out, let's go out swinging. So they find a new target that's within the amount of fuel that they have left. And they want to go ahead and drop a nuke on that target. Now, while everybody's celebrating in the war room because all of the planes were recalled and Russia confirmed shooting down four of the planes, it ends up that they only confirmed shooting down three of the planes. So we now realize that there's this AWOL plane that's flying around. U.S. is obviously worried because if they do release that, it's going to trigger the doomsday device and the end of life as we know it. But that's not going to stop the old Major Kong from uh, doing what he feels is his duty. So very we get this whole sequence where, again, you know, they're flying around. We get a lot of cuts. Uh, the war room is trying to stop them. They can't communicate with them. We see Kong and all the craftsmen and, you know, they're making it happen. They're going to go down patriotically, give them hell, go out swinging that whole thing that we said at the top. And so that's going to set up that sort of final scene, which is almost the last sequence, uh, the most famous scene in the movie, one of the most famous scenes in filmmaking history where Major Kong jumps on that bomb and is able to get it to drop down the hatch and then rides it like a bucking Bronco, waving his cowboy hat back and forth, claiming yeehaw as the missile goes down and strikes its target in Russia. 
And so before we get to the final sequence, Ryan, I will ask you, you know, we've discussed the acting, we've discussed the direction, but, you know, mm-hmm. one of the really strong aspects of this film and what it's most notably remembered for is really its screenplay, you know, and how much work the screenplay does in communicating the comedy, right? We mentioned this is sure. sort of a, a black comedy or a satire, so certainly very little, if any, jokey jokes, right? It's not broad comedy. Uh, the sort of mm-hmm. comedy is in the ridiculousness. You know, he famously, Kubrick famously described it as his nightmare comedy, you know, because even though there's all this silly, wacky stuff going on, at the end of the day, the world is destroyed, right? So right. You can't really call it a happy ending by any means. So right. it was. A, we talked about how it was adopted from the short novel Red Alert, initially conceived as a thriller, but was later turned into a comedy. So, um, what? So do you? I mean, I would think it's fair to say that. Had this movie remained a thriller, it probably would have been a good movie and it probably would have been. I mean, it's a it's a Stanley Kubrick movie, right? So it would have ended up being more than it was initially conceived as anyway, sort of the same way that Paths of Glory was. Right. Even though it's a war movie, mm-hmm. there's a lot of commentary and stuff going beyond the scenes. So. Yeah. Um, but you know, th- this, this version of, a lot this of the same story, things, you know, and then the, the, you know, even in Paths of Glory, you had, uh, the, the war generals and stuff in the war room, which was like all big and lavish. Remember it was like super fancy. I think they were even playing chess at one point, uh, in the film and all of that while Kirk Douglas's character was in the trenches and being fucked around. So yeah, it's, it's saying a lot of the same things. Sure. Yeah. So, so my question to you though, is this is initially conceived as a, as a pure thriller or maybe even, you know, an action movie, uh, a sure. war movie, much more so within Kubrick's traditional wheelhouse. And then it gets converted into a comedy, which makes it something that's more unique. But do you still think that this movie is as well received and stands the test of time if it is a more straightforward thriller because it's a Stanley Kubrick movie? Or do you think that perhaps it maybe gets relegated to one of the lesser Kubrick movies because there's not as much meat on that bone? And, you know, now that it was turned into this comedy, it exists as this singular work that can't really be compared to much. Hmm. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that, um, my faith in Kubrick at this point is such that I would believe that he would do either justice. He's proven that he could do both. Yeah. So, uh, in fact, quite the contrary, I think it's more of a stretch to say that, you know, that he could do a good comedy than, than anything else. He, you know, thrillers, he's, he's got down pat. Yeah. Well, so, that's exactly my point because that's much more so in his wheelhouse. So like for, right, you so know, you think it just gets passed off as another, you know, full metal jacket or the shiny yeah. or something like that. Like, you know, because I mean, people love those movies, kind of right? Like people feel that full metal jacket is one of cinema's great films and shining right. is the all time best horror film. So it's like, is there a version where he creates like the best war thriller, right? Yeah. Or the best thriller. Um, yeah, and I think it's there is. because it's Stanley Kubrick and whatever he does is yeah. going to be good. Sure. Yeah. Show I do think so as well. Kubrick film. I haven't seen <laughs> one yet. Um, I, there are still some Stanley Kubrick films. Um, I have yet to watch. Uh, so, you know, we'll see if we get to a couple of those on this show, but um, it's really just yeah, his first uh, one, the killer's kiss. I didn't care for. And then there's the one, yeah. his very, very first film that never got distribution. But even The Killing, which that. is like, I think his second or third film, which stars Sterling yeah. Hayden, is great. Sterling Hayden's in that one. Yeah. yeah. You know, he's also in The Godfather, too. He's like a dirty No, cop. I didn't know that. 
that is interesting. The one thing I will say though about the screenplay, I think one of one of the things that impresses me the most and that kind of stands out about it and that makes me I, I mentioned this at the top of this particular episode, makes me sort of reconsider the scope of Kubrick's films is how ultimately small this story is. And then that got me thinking about all of his other films. And then I thought about how small all of those stories are. And so it's mm-hmm. really funny because you have an ambitious filmmaker and an ambitious artist who wants to say things about the nature of humanity and the world at large and make these huge grandiose statements about life and space and earth and human morality and the dichotomy of man really big giant heady concepts you know that span populations of people and planets and and all of this sort of stuff right so but then when you look at his stories he's like i'm gonna tell this a very concise story that has like a very consistent through line where a goes to b goes to c And I'm going to let that sort of reflect the world at large. So even in a movie like Full Metal Jacket, which is going to be his commentary on the Vietnam War, right? A very Mm -hmm. huge event. The first half takes place in the in the barracks. We never leave the barracks and the training uh, for the soldiers. Right. right? Um, That's an hour, 20 minutes or something that we're there. And then even is it that long? It's been a long time since I've seen it because I know it's a long time. It's a movie of two halves. So I want to say it's a two and a half hour movie because it's Kubrick. So it's at least an hour if it's not if it's not more like split down the middle. But and then even when we go to Vietnam, like, you know, he doesn't take us on the helicopter ride and show us the vistas and the huge landscapes. Like we straight right. get close up of, Vincent there's no fortunate D'Onofrio. son credence moment. Exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> we, we get a close up of Vincent D'Onofrio's head as he shoots himself in the head and we see the blood splatter on the wall. And then we immediately cut to the soldiers that are already there, you know, hunkered down within this outcropping of trees and such. And so in like, in both instances, it's this very claustrophobic feeling for what would otherwise be, you know, a very big open type of story or setting. And, Mm -hmm. you know, same thing with this film, right? When you have an ensemble piece that has like five or six different actors, it would normally be a bit more of an Amoris Pedos structure to use a more recent film, right? Where it's like, okay, there's this guy and here's this story, our Quentin Tarantino type thing. There's this guy and there's this story and there's this guy and there's this story and he's going here and then she's going there and this guy's going here and we're going to do that for a couple hours and then at the end, they're all going to kind of come together and we'll see how they intersect. But they're largely individual, almost like short stories that sort of have this connective through point at the end. Whereas this is all one specific story, right? And, you know, we're introduced to Mandrake and and, uh, Ripper, who, you know, uh, then the army calls to talk directly to Turgeson on their behalf about what that's going on and tells him to go meet with the president. So then he leaves there and goes to the war room and he and, you know, and, and again, we don't see. Him going from the base, we don't see him walking through uh, the the outside and, you know, hundreds of soldiers out marching around and get this big scope. You know, he he literally jumps on his girlfriend in bed in his little apartment, uh, makes a little crude joke, and then we cut directly to being inside the war room. Even down to the standpoint that there's no exterior establishing shots for pretty much anything right. except for the Air Force base during the actual during the battle like, scenes. Sequence. Yeah, during the battle scenes. Yeah. Exactly. Everybody's introduced already inside a place and there's no establishing shots. Even, yeah, that's right. crazy. I didn't even really no, it, it very that. much plays out like a stage play. You pretty much have three locations when you think yeah. about it. Yeah, and so I think that's one of the, like, the really ultimately 
uh, wonderful things that the screenplay does is it takes all of these disparate characters and these disparate elements, potentially disparate storylines and through lines and distills them. You know, it cuts away all the fat and it trims until it's just got this very singular sort of essence. And then we're just, you know, we're from here and then we're from there and we're not really, you know, taking all these different little tributaries and shortcuts and all looping around and this and that. Like it's, we're very much at point A to point B, which then just sets us up as an audience to appreciate those performances that we're talking about that really carry that film. And I will also say that it's thriller DNA or the, the DNA that it was originally infused with as a thriller still kind of comes through. That was another thing that surprised me this time around is that I was actually really invested in the story. And even though I knew where it was going, like it did kind of have like a light thriller element to it. And I did want to sure, see no, if these guys did. were going to be able to communicate that. And how are they going to pull it off? Because the communications have been blasted, right? Like you could totally right. play that just as straight. And there's a lot of suspense and drama in there. So even though you've taken it with a comedic tone, just the fact that that's still baked into the structure and the screenplay, you do get a compelling mm -hmm. thriller along with these sort of very funny uh, and absurdist observations. Right. Yeah. I mean, like if you took a Michael Mann film uh, and then, you know, put Jim Carrey in one role and then, <laughs> you know, <laughs> kind of just injected these little comedy moments throughout and then made the whole thing, you know. If if heat was there and then, you know, you get to the bank scene and then they're trying to steal something ridiculous, like a bunch, box full of candy canes or whatever. The whole thing is predicated on bodily fluids like, you know, from a first time watch when you don't know these things, especially going back to 1964, when, again, uh, the Cold War was at its peak, you know, you got uh, or, or just, you know, kicking off and being really super scary and all the stuff in Guantanamo Bay that had just happened with the, you know, all of that with nuclear scare, uh, Russian bomb scare and stuff. So these things were all very relevant. You know, P uh, students were hiding under their desks uh, for nuclear bomb drills at this time. So um, to play this for comedy, yeah, there, there's a lot of thrilling moments in this, especially back then. Um, you know, we could look back at 1964 because we made it and we have the power of hindsight and say, ah, you know, sure. that's silly what Peter Sellers is doing. But at the time, nuclear uh, Holocaust was scary as shit. We yeah. had just figured out this whole thing, you know, Q Oppenheimer. So, yeah, it's it, uh, I could definitely see this being a very dark comedy, especially sure. back in 1964, 1963. Um, yeah. Like I said, um, our president was just assassinated. Like, how fucking crazy was that at the time? You know, like, everything was fine. He was at a parade and he was waving. And then all of a sudden that, and then the, now the Vietnam War. And then just a couple of years after this, you know, the draft and, yeah, counterculture and civil rights and MLK. It was a very tumultuous time. So. Sure to take a beat and look at these very serious subject matters um, and, and laugh at them, um, take some balls, I think. And so Absolutely. I think there are a lot of remnants, you know, the, the original script, I'm sure you saw this, but the original script uh, supposedly started with aliens um, yeah, at the I end of the world, that, yeah. coming back and visiting earth and then trying to suss together how the world ended. And then yeah. we find this out and the rest of the straight story transpires. And he since, you know, lopped that off. And, uh, rep, you know, replaced it with uh, B-52 bombers fucking. But, you know, hey, that works too. <laughs> Absolutely. And it is it is funny because that initial scene does set up 
what the final scene sets up here now that we've kind of yes. got to the final sequence. And, you know, that is kind of what you touched on earlier about this sort of, you know, dichotomy of man where it's like we can make the most technologically impressive things that, you know, any civilization has seen uh, or at least any civilization that's reasonably within the power of ours, but then also just constantly succumb to our lesser and baser instincts, right? And that's sort sure. of what we see in this final sequence, right? Where they're talking about, well, you know, the world's kind of over, but hey, you know what? We're gonna have to uh, re, we're gonna have to repopulate this, and you know, we can't afford to bring everybody, so we should really just do, you know, the best <laughs> of the best, which are the twenty of us right here, um, and we're gonna have to repopulate the earth, gentlemen. And while we're yeah. at it, we're going to have to get the world's most attractive women to do so. Wow, this <laughs> end of the world thing ain't sounding so bad. Right? <laughs> that whole monologue, dude, I was fucking rolling. Because, you know, he's obviously this strange love character. And the lighting on him is so ominous with his crazy, wacky Gene Wilder hair off to this, you know, Bride of Frankenstein style hair off to the side. And yeah, dude, it's just chef's kiss to that to that whole thing because <laughs> it starts off so innocent like you know it starts off like even you and i would be listening to this being like no that's a pretty good idea and then it just like devolves into how about the 20 of us go get in this cave with a bunch of women and repopulate the earth <laughs> 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 i was like bravo yeah bravo. George C. scott's like all excited now and stuff and everyone's like all right yeah let's yeah. do this thing next yeah, hundred years is not looking so bad right, a guys? long time ago <laughs> but yeah you know Fabulous. just to your point right like they they will they've they've literally created a, an underground bunker complex with the technology and farming and irrigation and all of that to exist for the next hundred years just fine yes in spite of nuclear radiation and yet at the same time they're just going to ultimately uh destroy themselves because they can't get past this idea of just banging everything that walks. Right. <laughs> Again, it's like the, the genius of, you know, Oh, we're going to create this thing, but then we're going to go yes, be animals yeah. with it. Exactly. You know, 100%. The same yeah. way that we just did the bomb, the same way that, you know, he portrayed in 2001 and all of the things. So, and that's what yeah, I think that uh, initial credit sequence is communicating too, because you know, the plane sure. is a technical Marvel and especially right. going back 60 years, it was only that much more recent and that much more new technology. Yes. So once again, you know, we created this wonderful technology and then used it to bang or, and then used it to simulate them banging right like because that's just right how we the most advanced uh you know creation in human civilization and then we do this with it you yeah. know what i mean it's the same thing with our freaking cell phones we have pocket computers that that has the whole world's information of all the history of man all of it is in my phone i could look up anything and then we use it to watch porn <laughs> learn about world war ii or oh cat memes <laughs> oh man right exactly yeah. so stupid we are as humans it's just meat brainless meat sacks absolutely Brilliant. yeah and so that's why uh you know and then also you know we should so the in terms of the film proper that whole sequence happens and then we get the great moment at the end where dr strangelove uh, you know he's all juiced up and ready to go repopulate stands up from his wheelchair looks around yes. and exclaims mind Fuhrer, i can walk and then immediate cut <laughs> to nuclear annihilation right and yeah which is also funny because i also think that if you wanted to keep in with the sex metaphor 
You could pretty much describe the cuts of all the bombs at the end as like a nuclear orgasm of sorts, right? Right. Where they're all just going off and exploding, you know, because we've already, yep. like we didn't even mention, but like the shot at the very We're beginning. We're going to go blow our loads. Yeah. If you The will. shot at the very beginning <laughs> where like it's a close up of that fueling staff, like just coming out, like it looks exactly like a penis head. Like it don't even have to be creative. Like if, if you didn't know, you might've even thought you saw a penis for a minute and then had to tell yourself it was a plain part. Right. So Jason, <laughs> if I didn't know any better, I would say you jerked off to this movie. Did you jerk <laughs> off to this movie? Uh, right, okay. Cinematic confession. <laughs> Fantastic. Well played. That's a conclusion. Wrap it up, folks. Can't think of a better way to end our review of Doctor Strange Love than that. Yep. <laughs> the best. So, yeah. Uh, very, very interesting, wonderful Strange film. love indeed. <laughs> we are going to go ahead and wrap up this episode as we do with our formal rating as well as our three adjectives feature, which we'll tell you about in a second. But first... We do want to remind first, you, if you haven't yet, go ahead and like this video, subscribe to our channel, and hey, we're all wrapped up here. Let us know what you thought about this movie. Let us know what you thought about our review. Did you think anything was interesting, funny? Uh, did you hate what we had to say about anything? Any side of the spectrum, drop it in the comments. Send us an email, esotericacinema at gmail.com. We would love to interact with you and hear what you think about what we have to say, as well as the movie itself. So... Uh, let's go ahead and let's get into three adjectives. But Ryan, since we're still a little bit new to this, uh, why don't you just go ahead and explain what three adjectives is uh, before we go ahead and give them? Well, this is a feature that we created many, many years ago uh, that if you had to s summarize this film in three adjectives um, that we have kind of used creative license to stretch out to maybe a couple words or a few words. But if you could just succinctly go to a friend who had never seen a movie, uh, the, the movie, and just really quickly get it out there, how would you describe it? So for me, as an example, I would use satire, because it is, subtle, because it's very subtle to me, uh, and society mirror, because I think it does a very good job of holding a mirror up to society and make us look like Jason and I just did moments ago. <laughs> as dumb, foolish, idiot animals, uh, despite all our technological advances. So we have bent heaven and earth and done all this research to create this YouTube show to inject our faces into cyberspace. We're recording with all these fancy microphones and cameras and lighting and all the things so I could do this on camera and uh, all our dick and fart jokes. So uh, Jason can't see what I'm doing right now because we record across the country from each other. But just know, Jason, I, I did something funny. Hey, right up here, buddy. Right in my mind. It's all right there. And I know it's exactly what you're doing because that's how synced it's, up we are, bro. Something along those lines, yes. <laughs> Whatever you just did is what I just did, correct. <laughs> That's great. So, yeah. Now, so it's funny, too, because I have noticed that there's sort of been a little bit of a theme here coming up with regards to the three adjectives, because, like, three adjectives as a feature can look a few different ways. Sometimes we'll just sure. give one words, right, and they're very just descriptive. Sometimes we're feeling particularly creative, so we'll get a little bit flowery with some, you know, throwing some good, uh, you know, some adjectives on top of adjectives, right? All this sort of mm -hmm. stuff. Uh, we do have a feature that we bust out every now and then. Uh, the what is it? The game uh, metaphor edition. Uh, that's the, we don't have edition. that here. Don't have that right now. But we do three adjectives. Uh, metaphor I was hoping edition. you were getting. I was, I was hoping no, you were teeing that up. No, I wasn't teeing it up. I just I recalled it right now. But it's a little game we play. We'll get that one to you guys sometime down the road. 
No, but I was saying because last time you had some like really eloquent stuff and I was just like, good, smart. Like, so then I was like, oh, I got to up my game. And then now you're like given the one <laughs> word. So now mine is going to seem like effusive compared to that. But whatever. So uh, this guy, this fucking guy with his words, his metaphors. <laughs> so uh, for, yeah, for three adjectives, uh, my first one is I'm going to say reservedly cartoonish, right? So this is okay. almost like a cartoon that like the Brits might do, right? It's not like your crazy, sure. wacky American, like crude, rude, sort of like Looney Tunes humor. Uh, it's it, but it's also, it is very over the top and, you know, from the it performances, is just the whole subject matter, even just poking fun at this stuff uh, to your point earlier, this probably wasn't done as much in the sixties at the time. Right. Like uh, we're, you know, we were sort of like eighties and nineties kids that were taught to just make fun of everything. But at the sixties, I doubt there was like a huge contingent of people like, yeah, nuclear war is hilarious. That would make a great comedy. Right. right? So, right. The other, this is before Mel Brooks. This yeah. is before, uh, Monty Python. This is, you know, you, you kind of just have the Marx Brothers, and and uh, you know, then there are, there are some some comedies along the way in the fifties, but they're very, you know, much more broad comedies or subtle comedies or whatever. So even even stuff like Sweet Smell of Success, things like that, you know, have comedic moments. But uh, yeah, this was kind of in a league of its own at the time. I could imagine. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, uh, but again, not going full Looney Tunes there. We also have anxiously comedic, right? There's this sort of sense of dread. Like I said, I mentioned that Stanley Kubrick was really worried about thermonuclear war. He had read like Mm -hmm. 50 books on the matter. This was sort of his way of dealing with that sort of paranoia, right? And so even when you do get the comedy, it's still under this larger umbrella of like, yeah, it's funny, but also we're all going to die. So like maybe we should still be a little nervous about that as well. Right. (laughs) Right. Which is also funny that we get to my third adjective and that's confidently flippant. Right. What I mean by confidently flippant, this movie for everything else that it wants to say is basically to your point of like, you know, mankind is doomed to his own sort of devices or vices or what have you like. Stanley Kubrick is very confident that there ain't shit that we can do and nobody else can either. Right. Like these 24 (laughs) dudes are going to do what they're going to do. And the other couple billion of us who are just sitting around jerking off and doing whatever we're going to do with our lives. Like, yeah, we have no impact on any of that. Right. If some cartoon Mm -hmm. supervillain in Russia or wherever decides that he wants to launch a nuclear weapon and destroy earth, that's going to happen and there's nothing you can do about it. So for as much as I want to talk about all of this as a filmmaker and as an artist, I also recognize that there's just absolutely nothing that can be done about it. And we are at the complete whims of a handful of people that have all the power and that's just the way it is, you know? So yeah, reservedly cartoonish, anxiously comedic, confidently flippant. going to go ahead and formalize this with a star rating out of five. I will give this Four and a quarter stars. Uh, it's as good, well made quarter. as a movie as you're going to have. Um, yeah. And uh, I think it's really good. And it's not like my like favorite, favorite Stanley Kubrick movie, but still very good. There's a lot to be taken from it. And four and a quarter stars for old Jason. What you got, Ryan? Ready for this? Hmm. Five stars. Wow. The full five. Okay. That's, wow, that's awesome, dude. Yeah. Five very stars. Cool. Fantastic. I... Love it. Uh, so a couple things, um, I can't, I would give it the four and a quarter for the technical, uh, like what you're saying four, four and a quarter, but I can't negate 
the writing, the comedy, everything, and the just overall enjoyability. I would go watch this movie right now. Like <laughs> if you said, hey, you want to put on Dr. Strangelove, I would watch this movie anytime. Like yeah. it's a fun movie. It um, is, it's concise. It's, it's a perfect film. It's just really, really good. And it's fun. So yeah, five stars. This is a five star Ryan movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, my the good thing is that most most of cin- uh, cinema out there will absolutely one hundred percent agree with you. Sure. And uh, you know this is what I think third on AFI's best comedies of all time. I think it's like twenty three that... to twenty five on AFI's best films of all time. So oh, this really? is a okay. very very highly regarded film. Fair. And so yeah, cool. there's not a person in the world who's going to disagree with you on that five star rating. Well, I might, but again, hey, look, I, 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 I could very easily give this five stars, right? Like I'm sort of trying to, I'm trying to be a little bit more discriminatory. You know, you might've noticed know, this on the video reviews I here, but like old Jason was I've very liberal with his five star ratings. And then, you know, it was like, we, you know, we talked about it. It's like, man, we can't just be over here given every single movie we watch five stars can't, because like it kind of lessens our credibility if everything is a five star movie. I get it. But but the but the other side of that token is also true, and I can't just hold five stars and that fifth star in my pocket for like you know crazy art house films because it had a cool steady cam shot or yeah. you know oh they did all this stuff like the, comedies can be five star movies too you know especially Absolutely. dark well made Kubrick comedies yeah. and so here we are this is to me one of the best versions of this thing in yeah. fact. I don't even know what this thing is. It's kind of in a league. Like I said, it's kind of in a league of its own. So, um, by the way, real quick, I want to, maybe that warrants the extra three quarter stars right there. Yeah. I I want to course correct. I'm going to give it four and a half stars because that was my, that was my initial gut reaction was four and a half stars. And then I told myself that I needed to be more discriminatory. And so I took the quarter star off just so that I could start to lean towards it. But even saying mm-hmm. it out loud felt wrong. And so just before we go out here, <laughs> before we go out for the first time ever, before we go out, I'm going to just tweak that to a solid four and Perfect. a half stars. Right now, my stomach just felt a little bit less tense. That's, that was Good. another thing. I was like, oh, the knot's there. That's four what we're here four for. Is, nah, no, four and a half, though. But I can't give it the full five because, um, again, you know, to me, it just it wasn't as fun as like you're talking about like it's a it's a very very fun look we get into this right like i hate when i have to do this i hate when i give a movie a four and a half out of five stars <laughs> and then have to defend myself for not giving it a, like a perfect like it's like four and a half stars is a bad rating right four and a half stars is Jason, pretty much as good as you can get but it's like when we uh when we reviewed grave of the fireflies with uh craig yeah. and seamus and all of us were like yeah i'm gonna have to give it four and a half stars uh, i'm gonna give it four and a three quarter star like these are good ratings that's like a nine and a nine and a half on a 10 point scale. It's pretty right. much as good as you can get. So like, I'm not yes. apologizing for my four and a half star rating. Okay. I'm not asking you to. <laughs> <laughs> no one's asking you to. <laughs> I hear the people out there. They haven't written the comments you're, yet, you're but doing I can hear them being Peter written right Sellers now. soliloquy here with Every yourself. Everything Stanley Kubrick uh, does is five stars. You don't know film. <laughs> <laughs> Jason, we're not critics. None of it matters. We're just having a discussion. Uh, but it's okay. I'm glad yeah. that you came around. And I will say that uh, it's good to see you try a little tenderness Aww. to quote the film, <laughs> to quote the film. So anyways. Yeah. So now, you know, you might think that, hey, okay, these guys are wrapped up. It's uh, time to leave. Oh, no, sir or madam. 
no, that's not true. We actually have one more feature that we like to do at the end of our real long form reviews. And for anybody who's familiar with the podcast, uh, this is this is what we've been doing on the podcast for the three seasons prior to this video season. And that is that we pull all of these movies, these long form deep dive reviews, of which this is our second coming after RRR, which was the first. We pull all of these off of a master list, right? Uh, the is... master list! <laughs> we used to have a much more structured thing that we do on the podcast that we're having to, like, you know, explain to you guys here. But these are the remnants and echoes that you guys are hearing from that. So what is the master list? Look, you you know that we're long-winded bastards by now, but you may not know that we're very indecisive. Though also you've probably figured it out right now. We had no idea when we started this thing, like, how on earth would we sit there and choose a movie week to week right it's like meals right. like the most stressful thing in the world for me is not making dinner it could even be like a full-on like two-hour thing but deciding what to have for dinner is the most stressful thing in the world you end up getting in fights you can't decide we had that last time blah 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 so is there some way that we don't have to put ourselves through this and potentially jeopardize the nature of our relationship and this nice thing that we have going on with each other let's leave it up to chance so what we did is we created a master list and we went and we found 200 films that we believe are within the wheelhouse of the type of films that we want to be looking at. Right now, some of them you're going to have heard of a lot of them. You will not have. You'll notice there's some really high art films on there. You'll notice there's some really low genre crap on there. Academy Award winners, B movies, everything in between. Right. So hopefully the idea is it's stuff that's like less talked about. It's a little bit less mainstream. We will make exceptions for certain like really good movies. It's like Amadeus, right? Like Amadeus is a great movie, but everybody knows it and most everybody has seen it. But it also doesn't take away from the fact that it's a brilliant movie, which is why we're going to put it on our list. So we have this master list of 200 films. And then at the end of all of these episodes, we go to random.org and their true random number generator that I always like to joke. They pay us a ton of money, to, but they've never sponsored us in their life. Shame on you, free website, random.org. Send us the, the random.org money. But either way, so we use them and we pull a number one through 200. And then that's the film that we're going to look at in the next episode. So for all of the long form episodes, our two hour plus deep dives that uh, you guys are watching, if you're still here with us, thank you very much. I don't know why, but play more of these where they came from. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to do that. If you want to see the films that are on the list, we actually have that list up on our website, esotericacinema.com. Go ahead and see. You can go there. You can check it out. If you'd like to, you can sort of play along. You can pull it up and see the films because I'm about to throw out a number from random.org and then that number is going to correspond to the list and that's the next film we're going to do so long-winded explanation there but i believe that nobody should be confused as to what we're doing here anymore <laughs> <laughs> and now with without further ado i will read every film on that list <laughs> one <laughs> 1984 two a boy and his dog <laughs> so anyway so yeah so what we're going to do here is we're going to go to a uh, random.org true number generator if you have that list or you're on the website go ahead and pull it up oh i, I actually our first one is 1984 the second one is 2001 a space odyssey so if we pull a two we get to redo that long lost episode there but either way so we go to our random.org we have one through 200 we pop it in system goes whirly dirly does a bunch of little spinning around and then we get to film number. Oh, it's towards the top this time. Uh, eight. Film number eight. So whatever film number eight is, you're going to go to the list. You're going to scroll down and you are going to see that 
oh man, this is such a great movie, dude. I love, I actually saw this movie uh, once for the first time a few years ago, maybe three to four years ago, and totally blew my mind, was not prepared for it. And that is Anatomy of a Murder. I believe it's Otto Preminger. I believe it's Otto Preminger. It is definitely Jimmy Stewart. Um, Ryan, do you have a description for us? I do, and it is from Otto Preminger. Google has this described as semi-retired Michigan lawyer Paul Beegler, played by Jimmy Stewart, takes the case of Army Lieutenant Mannion, played by Ben Gazzara, another Ben Gazzara film, uh, murdered a local innkeeper after his wife uh, claimed that he raped her. Over the course of an extensive trial, Beegler parries with District Attorney Lodwick, uh, an out-of-town prosecutor, Claude Dancer, played by George C. Scott, another George C. Scott film, uh, to set his client free. But his case rests on the victim's mysterious business partner, who's hiding a dark secret from 1959. Yeah, right. This was uh, nominated for Best Actor in a Leading Role. Music by Duke Ellington. I was yeah. gonna say, yeah, it's uh, it's got like a the, the the jazz soundtrack is like very much part of the film's DNA from what I remember. So it's like a it's like a courtroom drama with like jazz, like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm really looking uh, forward to rewatching this film because I remember absolutely loving it the first time around. I get my comeuppance. This is a uh, two hour and forty minute movie. So. <laughs> <laughs> Take <Karma>. that, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, right. Settle in, bud. So that is our review of Dr. Strangelove. Go ahead and make sure to watch Anatomy of a Murder ahead of our next Deep Dive episode. For myself, Jason Peters, and my buddy Ryan Siebold, this is Esoterica Cinema telling you to enjoy the movies.